On this week's 51%, we spend the show with gender and religion scholar Laura Levitt. You'll hear her story of rape, and while not graphic, please be forewarned. She hopes more federal attention is paid to unprocessed rape kits. The idea that a, that a, um, an actress who plays the part of uh, an officer in a special victims unit is the national spokesperson for trying to get rape kits processed in the United States seems like, you know, an obscene reality. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. On a November evening in 1989, Laura Levitt was raped in her own bed. Her landlord heard the assault taking place and called 911, but the police arrived too late to apprehend Levitt's attacker. When they left, investigators took items with them, a pair of sweatpants and more, and a rape exam was performed at the hospital. However, this evidence was never processed. Decades later, Levitt returns to these objects, viewing them not as clues that will lead to the identification of her assailant, but rather as a means of engaging traumatic legacies writ large. Her latest book, The Objects That Remain, is equal parts personal memoir and an examination of the ways in which the material remains of violent crimes inform our experiences of and thinking about trauma and loss. And considering artifacts in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and evidence in police storage facilities across the country, Levitt's story moves between intimate trauma, the story of an unsolved rape, and genocide. Throughout, she asks what it might mean to do justice to these violent pasts outside the juridical system or through historical empiricism, which are the dominant ways in which we think about evidence from violent crimes and other highly traumatic events. Levitt is professor of religion, Jewish studies, and gender at Temple University. You know, I have to tell you that the second I started reading, um, you know, about your book and and uh, and more, I was struck with this image from Steven Spielberg's movie Schindler's List, where I believe it's at the beginning of the movie. It was so long ago that he used, you know, like sneakers that had been left behind and just objects, and, and it was such an a visceral image. And uh, I don't know why reading about your book brought to mind that image to me, but it did. Just just what that all means. So let's let's get more into your memoir and your story. And, you know, what prompted you to to write this book? Really began as I was completing the last book that I wrote, which was called American Jewish Loss After the Holocaust. And I was thinking about how different losses touch. And I happened to I was fortunate to meet the poet um, Maggie Nelson. And um, she had just written a book of poems about her aunt who had been murdered before she was born. And she had written a book of poem, of poetry about her aunt's life and death called Jane a Murder. And as that book went to print, it turned out there was a break in this 30-some-odd-year-old cold case. And when I met Maggie Nelson, she had just gone to the preliminary hearing in what became her aunt's murder trial. And uh, we were, we have mutual friends and we were having dinner and she was describing being in that courtroom. And she talked about, you know, finding, she didn't know that there was all of this stuff that had been taken um, the night that her aunt was murdered, including the clothing that her aunt wore the night that she was murdered. And hearing about that clothing um, really uh, astonished me because I actually care about clothing and um 
it occurred to me that I had not thought about what was taken from my apartment the night that I was raped in 1989. And so I became interested in thinking about um, what happens to those kinds of um, thing, objects that are taken. And because I was working on Holocaust memory, um, at that time I was working more with photographs, but I started thinking about the troves of material evidence that are a part of places like the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And I became curious about how these things were related and, of course, how they related to my story. And um, like you, I'm also very um, taken by images of clothing, and it's not surprising to me, again, that you return to Spielberg and think about how um, those material objects figure in the film. I was thinking also about the little girl who was wearing the red coat, um, and that red coat became kind of a figure throughout the film as a way of trying to help audiences remember the individuality of all of the people who were harmed and who died and who were, you know, treated so horrifically. Um, but that's one of the challenges when we talk about Holocaust memory. You know, separately, when you look at, um, you know, horrible natural disasters and you see burnt clothing or clothing full of mud, depending on the type of disaster, you know, it's just so striking, those images. So I wanted to talk about your affinity for for clothing and, and shoes. What What is this about? Um, well, I like to think that my mother was a little girl who grew up in the 30s and 40s and liked playing with paper dolls. And she was a school teacher who, in I was born in 1960, and in the early 60s, it seemed that she had to leave teaching in order to stay home with her young children. And I think my mother, dare I say this, was a bit bored being at home. And I think part of what ended up happening is I was the first child and she liked playing dress-ups with me. And I suspect that that's kind of where some of this began. And so I begin the book by talking about my own kind of affection um, for clothing. And um, I would part personify my clothing. I'd talk to shoes. I would talk to, you know, um, other pieces of clothing. Um, I feel bad when, you know, they'd be replaced by new ones and things like that. And so I kind of wanted to begin there because I wanted to kind of remember that it's not just in traumatic moments that we care about objects, but that most of us care about um, objects in our lives in different ways, obviously. But the idea to be reminded of having forgotten about my clothing from this most traumatic moment of my life um, was really startling given this other proclivity. So then let, let's go back to that. So then you, you explained at the beginning what prompted you to return, you know, 30 years ago. I know you did file a formal request for information. What, what was it you were expecting to find? Well, um, to be honest with you, it took me a long time to file that request for information. Um, I had very little confidence um, in the Atlanta police. Um, that's where I had been raped, and um, nothing ever happened in my case. So I went into this with very low expectations. Um, and in fact, I think I had imagined that I would have a final chapter that basically was nothing remains. Um, but instead, in 2014, um, after I had been working on the book for some time, I did make that formal request, and um, I was pleasantly surprised. First of all, they didn't get back to me, but eventually I let it sit for about two months, and then I called the Atlanta police. I made a cold call, and after you know sending me from one person to the next to the next, I finally got to this wonderful um, sergeant, I believe, in sex crimes, and she said to me, oh, funny, you should call. I have your case file on my desk. My partner and I have been looking 
for your evidence. This was really a surprise for me. Um, and um, we had a very long conversation, and this wonderful sergeant answered so many of my questions, questions about the statute of limitations, whether or not the Atlanta police had retested DNA evidence from cases going back to the 80s, and indeed they had. So I learned many, many things on that phone call. But in the end, they were never able to find um, any of my um, evidence. But when I got off the phone, I realized that she had my case file. And uh, so I immediately emailed back and said, would it be possible for you to share a copy of the case file with me? And so I had that case file, and that was not nothing. That was something. And um, I write about some of that in the book, and I... You know, and part of it was the sort of shock of um, what was in that report that took me a while to process. So I had not remembered, for example, that when the police were in my apartment that night that they took photographs of me, of my bruised arms, um, of my bruised neck and my, my face, and I, I was kind of shocked by seeing those pictures. I also found in the file, um, a few days later, I had gone to the police to give my formal statement and at the time, they were not um, computerized, so there was someone typing what I was saying. And then they gave me the typed um, manuscript and had me edit it. So it looks like, you know, in the old day, well, a year ago when I used to write on student papers, it looked like a student paper, and it was my handwriting. And so those were all quite um, surprising and shocking and meaningful, but um, disturbing. How has that impacted you? How did it I don't know, in the story writing, I'm just, how is this impacting you now? Well, you know, I think we live with trauma, um, those of us who have experienced violence, and um, it's an ongoing process, right? Um, I talk about this as kind of the afterlives, and we live different afterlives, and we come back to key moments in our lives differently in sort of the way in which I'm a religious studies scholar. So, you know, I think about how people read sacred texts and you read the same text over and over again and you come back to them, but you come back to them with different eyes because you're in a different place in your life. And so I think being able to return to my experience through um, uh, an extended engagement with the objects um, that were taken that night, and to think about my story with those objects who were there with me then. Um, and uh, I think that was a really different way of kind of being able to engage. And part of why I felt so powerfully about doing it this time is that um, reading the words of um, not only Maggie Nelson, but I also write about Edmund Duval, who wrote a fantastic um, family memoir about his family and all that they lost in the Holocaust called The Hair with Amber Eyes. And seeing these other writers write beautifully and powerfully about their, um, their family stories um, with intimacy and um, erudition and thoughtfulness, but really focused on, focusing on objects. I knew that what they had done for me was they allowed me to feel like I wasn't so alone. Um, that the objects occasioned a kind of companionship for me. And my hope was that in writing this book, and thus far I feel very um, humbled and, um, you know, moved that many people who have already read the book or are beginning to read the book have been able to kind of make that kind of connection. So it's, com it's companionship that I think is really powerful. And objects open up that space because... Um, you know, we all have ordinary clothing that we wear, 
And when we see clothing, as you talked about, in those disaster moments, we're reminded of how ordinary life gets um, radically um, changed in such um, moments, right? And the objects somehow powerfully hold that 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 ex- that sort of tension and terror and also familiarity. So, Laura, if we cross the bridge in, into the Holocaust Museum, and you know you say Holocaust art- artifacts will not ever be used as material evidence, right, in a court of law, they do, however, serve justice. How How is this? Well, part of the ways in which I think that they um, do justice is that, in you know, in a place like the museum in Washington, which has a very strong connect, uh, you know, collection of material objects, um, they are there so that scholars and writers and poets and musicians and other artists can go and use those archives and breathe new life into those stories. And so I think that we do justice by telling stories, by keeping these memories alive and powerful. And of course, it's not like you know the the key historian is going to go and tell the one story and that's it and it's over. Rather, um, stories breathe life into into these objects, and so um, they stay alive and breathing because they're not pinned down to one single story. But it's all of these different takes that people bring their own gifts to those stories, and that's part of what I think um, is so powerful about um, the way in which these kinds of um, Holocaust evidence, these pieces of evidence, can work to do justice to that past. They do it through the writing, as I say, of historians or the work of an artist or a journalist or um, a painter. There was something, this is kind of going back to, to the case itself, your case, and there was something that really struck me. And you talk about, you know, police who oversee property rooms, generally, you know, they're learning on the job, right? It's not, you're not professionally trained to oversee a property room. Why do you think this is a significant oversight? Um, that's a great question, Allison. Um, uh, I spent a lot of time trying to understand what the police do, and I was fortunate enough to discover this um, um, international association which is trying to professionalize these practices, and I got to take a course with them. And my argument is that we think in the law, we think about custody as kind of only within the context of the chain of custody or provenance. So where did they get it, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's sort of, it's in its end point, it goes into police property management, right? That that's custody and custody is the end point. And part of what I want to argue is that actually custody is a lot of work in the same way it is if you're caring for, you're in the custody of a child or um, a, a relative who has um, special needs or an elderly parent. Um, you have to care for them, right? You have to make sure that they have um, all of the things that they need. And in the case of objects, it means that you need to be able to know where the object is. You need to make sure that whatever is salient about it um, will not be somehow compromised while in custody. So the temperature has to be right. The kind of container which holds the object also has to be appropriate so that if you need to come back to test DNA, that there will indeed be DNA evidence. And so part of what I argue is that because most of this labor is invisible, and even as, again, when we talk about the law, it just kind of assumes that once it's in custody, it's all taken care of. 
And part of what I hope to shed light on is the ongoing labor of custody. And I think in shedding light on that, we can begin to understand why it is that all of those rape kits sitting in all kinds of storage facilities across the United States have not been processed. Um, because the law and because of the way in which we think about this um, more broadly, we don't think about what's going on behind the scenes. And I think to shed more light on this shows how um, that labor is crucial to the legal system. Because without custody, without people tending to those objects, there would be no evidence were your case to ever go to court, as it did in the case that um, Maggie Nelson wrote about. I'm hoping, and I'm, I, I recognize I'm going to be asking a very broad question, but I'm hoping you can bring gender into this and how that might affect either relationships with objects, how we care for objects, um, you know, that are important, that uh, have meaning. I'm just, I'm hoping to bring gender into this conversation. Um, and this is a great question. And I think, first of all, when I talk about invisible labor, there is a way, even when it's not necessarily done by exclu or exclusively done by women, that invisible labor, the labors of care, um, are often um, both completely necessary and at the same time figured as extraneous or not important. And so when I think about the arts and the rights of custody or property management in uh, or collections management or conservation at a place like the Holocaust Museum, I'm talking about um, cyclical labor, labor that has to be done on a regular daily basis. Um, a lot of that is, um, uh, you know, custodial labor, right? Um, and I think a lot of that is often associated, is often feminized labor and disparaged as such. The second thing I want to talk about is, um, you know, I was raped and um, the intimacy of that kind of uh, violation, um, a violation of my body, um, does connect powerfully as well to the intimacy of clothing and the kinds of ways in which culturally so many, us, so many of us um, are gendered through clothing, right? Um, we are kind of taught how to be, um, how to perform certain kinds of genders um, in the ways in which we dress and comport ourselves. Um, and clothing becomes a key piece in some of those enactments, um, for better and for worse. Um, and as someone who was raised, um, I'm now 60 years old, um, in a time where those, um, those, those gender boundaries were much more rigid than they are now, um, uh, I think that that has a lot to do with my own um, engagement with clothing. Um, I think that that's a part of it, and I think it's, it is, alas, quite gendered. What is your message for victims of violence? I understand how lonely it is to have experienced violation. And um, because I found companionship in the writing of these beautiful writers, um, Maggie Nelson and Edmund Duvall in particular, um, I really wanted to be able to write a book that could um, speak to others who have been harmed. Um, and I knew that objects were a way of doing that. And so what I hope is I want the book to be a kind of companionship. Not everyone can tell their stories. Um, I want to really be incredibly careful and respectful that only those who have experienced violation can figure out what feels right to them. And so I don't want anyone who has um, suffered 
to feel like there's an obligation that they should do what I did because I think that this worked for me. And I think that um, those who have had these experiences know best what works right, what works best for them. And I think for me to be able to tell my story was a way of, again, offering some companionship to others who've suffered. I did want to have you talk about faith, uh, because certainly that plays a role. You abandoned it uh, after the rape, um, going, of course, for scholarly endeavors. What, where are you now in terms of your approach to faith? Well, um, this is a very good question. So I was studying theology at the time that I was raped. I was getting a Ph.D. in religious studies at Emory University. And um, I think that theological discourse, discourse about about God, um, questions of a kind of worldview that was going to be sort of holding for me, broke. Um, and I think my faith in the state broke as well, because they didn't really offer me what felt like justice, certainly not justice from on high. But over the course of writing this book, what was perhaps most surprising to me was that I found myself um, thinking about religion and thinking about faith in a very different way. Um, and it went, and it really came through the objects. So I write about some of these objects as relics. And thinking through the idea of a relic as a kind of living memory, um, the ways in which they are cared for and held, and the kinds of beautiful containers that um, only um, extend their holiness, was something that was not something I would have ever imagined when I was studying theology um, in 1989 as a way of my being in the world. So I find myself um, down here in the muck, down here um, in a kind of this-worldly faith that really um, focuses more about material religion, about kind of the ways in which um, we don't have control of these objects, right? We can use them as evidence, but they're they're not... Um, they're not contained um, by those narratives. And the ways in which we can't contain them is part of what makes them holy in my experience. And there's a kind of humility that comes with that kind of acknowledgement that I find meaningful and powerful. And I also want to say that the other way in which this really came to be in the writing of this book was just a sense over and over again as I was working on this book for over 10 years that I was kind of on the right path, that there would be little these little signs and you know, in the, from the universe that kind of said, oh, yeah, this quirky thing you're doing makes sense. And um, that kind of serendipity, you know, having read Maggie Nelson's The Red Parts, um, only to, you know, finish the book, I was at a conference, um, and I got back to my hotel room, and I turned on the television, and there was Maggie Nelson on 48 Hours Murder Mystery, um, something she writes about in the book with some um, ambivalence and trepidation. And there she was on the screen, and I thought, wow, the universe is telling me something. And um, I, I, can't, I can't contain or control that. Um, and I find it both wondrous and powerful. I did want to ask you that... Um kind of jumping all over the place here, but there is connection among it all. Uh, after Anita Hill's testimony at Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court confirmation hearings, you say your mother discussed your rape with then-Senator Joe Biden. Uh, could you expand on this? Yeah, this is um, one of the strange um, things that happens when you're from a very small state. I know you're, I think you're in Albany, New York, where my father grew up. Um, and that state capital is a very vast and big place compared to Dover, Delaware. 
And so um, my my parents, my mother was a school teacher, my father worked for the Social Security Administration, and in Delaware, we had access to Joe Biden. Um, you didn't have to be wealthy. My parents spent many, many years going to these Biden seminars at his house. Um, I think he had them monthly. And um, they worked on his campaigns, and they knew him. And so, um, you know, he started working on the legislation, um, the Violence Against Women Act, um, not long after that hearing. And um, because he was working on that, I had a conversation with my mother saying that she asked permission to talk to him about my rape, and I said yes. And I also told her that if he had wanted me to, um, to testify in Washington, that I would have done that. I was not called upon to testify, but she did talk to him about it. And it is um, a little humbling now that he is president of the United States. What would you like to see him do in the area of, uh, of women's rights and uh, victims of violence and things of that nature? Uh, well, there are many things. First of all, I want to really make sure that, um, that health care is available, including reproductive care is available to all who need it, and not only women but also for trans and otherwise queer folks to have access to the kinds of care that they need. That's a very, very big thing. And, of course, um, for those who need to, um, to have abortion services, that they have them available. But more than that, I guess I, I want to go back to the question of violence. And um, I would really, really hope that um, more attention could be paid to all of those unprocessed rape kits. The idea that, a, that a, um, an actress who plays the part of uh, an officer in a special victims unit is the national spokesperson for trying to get rape kits processed in the United States seems like, you know, an obscene reality. Um, this should be a national priority, and all of those rape kits should be processed so that we can figure out if there are serial rapists and begin to use the technology that's available. Um, I, that's really one of my bigger hopes. Thank you for sharing that. Is there something that you really wanted to talk about or, or mention? Please feel free. It's just really important to me to remember that you don't have to be alone. Um, because that's that loneliness that really um, that really gets to you. And I think I write about this in the book. I talk about Svetlana Bama, a literary scholar, who talked about something called diasporic intimacy. And she says diasporic intimacy happens when you've lost everything, and then you can be surprised by moments of tenderness. And um, I've certainly experienced those moments, and my hope is that others others who are lonely, as I was, might experience them as well. Laura Levitt's book is The Objects That Remain. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1645. 